do you want a bigger penis and a million dollars? And you have to click the button that says, no, I want a small penis and no dollars. Right. This is The Gently Mad, a show where I talk to and pick the brains of the smartest people running creative online businesses. Actually, not so much. If you're looking for that inspirational kick in the pants to help take your life and career to the next level, then this is probably not the place for you. To be perfectly honest, this podcast is about me. Hey, I'm Adam Clark, and I'm your host. Thanks for listening. I do talk to people on this show, but instead of that double rainbow of success BS that you'll get in most entrepreneurial shows, we talk about failure, self-doubt, and all the insecurities that we all have that keep us from doing much of anything with our lives. If that sounds like your kind of thing, then head over to avclark.com slash TGM and subscribe. Any actionable advice or helpful tips are simply a byproduct and purely unintentional. All right, what's up, my friends? This is Adam Clark. It's a gently mad time again. Well, I just screwed the fuck out of that intro. I don't even... All right, let's just start over. Unique New York. Unique New York. Okay. All right, what's up, guys? This is The Gently Mad. I'm Adam Clark. Thanks for listening. It is Christmas Eve. This is a very special Christmas Eve episode for you with my friend, new friend, Corbett Barr. And I couldn't be happier to have this be the Christmas Eve episode. I hope maybe today's a great relaxing day for you and you have some time to just soak in the wisdom of this guy because he's got a lot of it to soak in. A lot of uh, a lot of a lot of wisdom sweat coming off of Corbett Barr there because first of all he's just a damn interesting guy, fun to talk to, very fun to talk to, but super smart man. I I just I I wanted to keep that conversation this conversation going for much longer than we did, but uh, I figured Corbett probably had things to do. And seriously, Corbett Corbett Barr, who has a name like Corbett Barr? I mean. Clark Gable, Channing Tatum, or is it Tating Channum? I never know which one is the first or the last. I mean, that that's like a movie star artist name if there ever was one. Corbett Barr. I've been thinking about that a lot, which just shows how weird and OCD I am. But I, I meant to ask him about how in the world he got the name Corbett Barr. I, I, I don't believe it's natural. I, th- I think he changed it. I, I, I do. I don't know. Maybe next time. I uh, get him back on the show. We'll we'll talk about that and whether or not uh, that is actually his real name. So, Corbett, if you're listening, I'm curious. I want to know. Shoot me an email. Uh, great conversation with Corbett. Had so much fun, and probably one of the more uh, what do you call it? The educational. One of the more uh, you're going to learn something in this one. Corbett has a ton of experience in the online business world, and it's just all over this episode. But we also just had a lot of fun talking about uh, our dreams and, you know, the things we want to accomplish in life. And you know how everyone always talks about, you know, I'm going to do this someday. I want to do that someday. And then no one ever does it, you know. And I've been frustrated with that in my own life lately. And one of the things I've been thinking about lately is just how I want to stop being that way. I want to just do the things that I dream about doing so I don't wake up one day and be 65 and go, well, I never did that, never did that, never did that. And so I'm trying. I'm trying anyway. And uh, one thing I did is I I finally launched the pre-sale 
of my podcasting course. And this is, I'm not saying this so that you'll go and pre-purchase, although I would like you to do that if you're interested in podcasting. And it's actually a great deal for you if you're interested in podcasting because it's significantly discounted right now. But here's the thing. Okay. I've never launched any, any, I've never launched a product in my life. I've never made a product. I never launched one. I've never sold anything like that. I, I, I don't know how to do it. I have no experience. And I launched my pre-sale page. And in the first 12 hours, I had over 50 pre-orders and made, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the number was. It was over a thousand dollars, which is, is not massive, but first 12 hours thousand bucks and 50 pre-orders and I've never even done this before so I say that to encourage you to encourage you that you can do whatever it is that's rattling around in the back of your brain that you're just not doing that you're afraid to do because you're afraid of failure afraid of whatever I'm afraid of all those things too I'm constantly afraid of those things and I Stayed up all, I pulled two all-nighters this week obsessing over that landing page. Should I write this? Should I write that? Should I put this here? You know, when I, it didn't even matter. I just needed to get the damn thing out there. And, and I did. And, and it proved that, you know, it, um, it worked. Okay. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm excited that, you know, it, that I'm an example of someone who, is not a genius and, and doesn't have anything particularly special to offer and can still make a success out of something. So I hope that is encouraging to you. So do it. Just fucking do it. Just do whatever it is that you want to do and give it a shot and see what happens. That's one of the things that Corbett and I talked about is how when it comes to online business and marketing and content marketing and the, the kind of stuff that a lot of us do, it, it's like it's like playing the lottery. You know, uh, each of our little projects is essentially a lottery ticket and you can't really get better at winning the lottery. You just have to keep buying tickets until one day eventually you win. Now, obviously, that analogy breaks down because the chances of you winning the lottery are astronomically low. But you get the point. It's a good analogy. I like it. And uh, we talked about that some in the show. It was just a great show. I really enjoyed it. <sighs> Man, it's almost the end of the year. Uh, Chattanooga. I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's it's raining right now. It's a rainy Christmas Eve, which is kind of... Uh, it's not the best. I wish it was snowing, actually. But, oh well. I hope you have a good Christmas Eve. I hope you're having a relaxing vacation right now. I want to tell you about a couple things, as, as I do, as I have uh, with this show. Today marks one week. One week of the new Gently Mad, and it has just surpassed everything I could have hoped for this show. Um, it's thousands of you have listened to this show um it's it's climbing the ranks in itunes steadily every day we're finally in the main new and noteworthy category in itunes which is awesome and it's getting closer to the top all the time and that's because of all the reviews and ratings and downloads and, and it's because of you it's because of you guys and it means a lot to me it means the world to me because i feel like this show is is what I have wanted. This this show is what I've wanted to create for so long. This is this is everything I wanted the gently mad to be. But it just took me 
two years to get here. And I guess maybe that's another lesson. Sometimes it just takes time to figure out what you have to say and how you want to say it and who you want to say it to. Maybe those things don't, you just don't know those things at the beginning. And maybe it just took me the two years to get here to where I finally have this show that I'm really proud of and is everything I've always wanted it to be. And, uh, and I, like I said, it's all because of you guys. You guys have, have sent me emails and encouragement and all that stuff. And it's, it's great. And as I did last week, I just wanted to read a couple of the reviews from this week because they're great and I want you to keep leaving them. So I'm going to do it. Here's one. I love this one. This one's from John from NC. I'm assuming that is North Carolina. Uh, says something different. Finally. This isn't another entrepreneurial podcaster trying to be John Lee Dumas. Adam has his own unique style. I highly recommend checking him out. John, that is probably the best compliment anyone could have ever given me. Nothing against John Lee Dumas, but I really wanted to be different and be intentionally different. And it really means a lot that that that's how you feel about the show. Uh, my friend Chase Reeves, who was on episode two of this show, left a review, which I don't know if it's a compliment. I can't tell. He, he says, dude's weird and I like it. Hope he figures out this whole who I am and what I'm here for thing. Actually, I hope he doesn't. Makes for better radio that way. So thanks, Chase. I hope I figure it out. At least that would be nice. So, um, another one from a friend of mine, Eric Beatty, a guy I used to work with years ago. Man, that takes me back. Eric says, interviews and no BS. So great. Take a listen. It will only take about a minute and you will be addicted. If you're interested in entrepreneurship, business, or anything in the realm of career, you will love this show. Uh, thanks, Eric. I really appreciate that, man. Uh, we need to catch up if you're listening, <laughs> doing, doing some personal, uh, personal stuff on the show right now. Last one for today is from Jason 44. He says, honest, relaxed, and lots of fun. Adam has a great way to making things not seem like an interview or a show with the way he talks. It's relaxed and he talks in human terms, lots of good info, not all seriousness, Generally, just fun to listen to. Give it a listen. You won't be disappointed. Thank you, guys, so much for those reviews. I really uh, appreciate it. Keep them coming because I want to get the show to the top of New and Noteworthy. I'm currently number two in the business category, ahead of Dave Ramsey. Ahead of Dave fucking Ramsey. Can you believe that? I'm, I'm proud of that. Anyway, I hope to get Dave Ramsey on the show. Speaking of which, man, I am so excited, guys. You will not believe um, there is some great stuff coming in January. Uh, I just confirmed Seth Godin for the show in January. Seth Godin is giving me an hour of his time. I can't believe that. I'm, I'm blown. My mind is blown. This guy is giving me an hour of his time for free to talk to me on the show. That's coming in January. James Clear is coming in January. Dan Martell in January. Merlin Mann in January. It's just, it's, you know, in addition to all the other great episodes that have already been recorded, I'm just so excited about how this is going. 
Uh, it's it's uh, it's mind blowing, and I can't thank you enough for making it possible by downloading and listening to the show. So, if you if you haven't subscribed and this is your first time listening to the show, um, you can go to avclark.com/tgm and subscribe there. I am running a contest. I'm giving away some pretty cool stuff that I've talked about quite a bit. Not going to talk about it all again here. Uh, if you're a first time listener, go to avclark.com slash contest and you'll see what I'm giving away. It's, it's, it's a lot, lots of cool stuff and it'll take you two minutes to enter. It's a couple small steps and you're in the contest. It ends December 31st. So we've got like a week left. So go there, get in on it and get your free shit. So do that. And if you are interested in my course, that's at avclark.com slash course. And I'm really excited to see what happens the rest of the week with that. And it's just, it's a, it's a great testament to the fact that you don't have to have some innate genius or marketing skill or massive list or anything to make something and make some money from it. So I encourage you to check that out. I'm going to be doing a big write-up next week about the idea for the pre-purchase and, and all of that stuff and, and, and how it all shook out after the week ends. But anyway, I want to get to this conversation with Corbett because it was a lot of fun and uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. We'll be right back with Corbett after a quick word from our sponsor. wise sage once said it's all about the features baby actually that's not true i just made that up however that is often what a lot of companies tout about their products is their features well i'm here to say that features don't mean shit features don't matter everyone has features what less accounting gives you is a process and a system that saves you time and saves you money how do they do that Let's talk to Alan. Alan's one of the co-founders of Less Accounting. We, we help you with uh, expense categorization. So uh, we have about 30 billion transactions in Less Accounting through all of our customers. And we know when we import from your bank or your credit card, if you spent money at Starbucks, we know that's coffee or meals. And so we categorize that for you as meals and entertainment because we know Starbucks is meals and entertainment. So we do some bookkeeping for you. It's all um, done through you know code. So you can see my expenses? Like you know how much money I spend on Starbucks? That would be embarrassing. That'd be embarrassing. That's not me personally. No, our, you know, we have servers and that sort of thing. But I'm not looking through your books, no. Oh, so just like the Skynet accounting, less accounting, Skynet knows what how much money I spend on Starbucks, but not you, basically. Correct. No, I don't look at people's books, no. <laughs> so privacy. Privacy is another good reason to use less accounting. Privacy is good. You know, it's cloud-based, blah, 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 all those, all those buzzwords. <laughs> but our, our goal is just, just to save you time uh, and not have an end-of-the-year frust- frustrating moment. Keep your accountant happy if you just follow the rules, which is spend about an hour a month going through your books and reconciling your books, and we show you how to do that. And uh, by the end of the year, you should be good if you just follow the rules. Nice. Okay. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for uh, uh, telling me about uh, you know everything I'm doing wrong with your <laughs> software. I'm going to go and uh, balance my books now. You should do that. So, less accounting. Go check them out at lessaccounting.com slash TGM. And there's a page there with information just for you, just for listeners of this show. Check them out. Let me know what you think. Less Accounting. Accounting software 
for business owners who hate accounting. All right, this is it. You ready? You ready for this conversation with Corbett? I don't know if you are ready. You need to get ready because this was a pretty good conversation. I'm serious. This guy just sweats wisdom, sweats knowledge. So if you're ready to get a little Corbett sweat knowledge on you, then let's dive into it. Here's my conversation with Corbett Barr. Howdy, howdy. What's up, man? How's it going? Not too bad. How about yourself? I'm pretty good. What are you, in Tennessee? Yeah, I'm in Chattanooga. How is it out there? Um, it's, uh, I mean, it's it's the Southeast, man, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> it's, but how is uh, it right now, specifically? It, Chattan- I would not want to live anywhere. If I was going to live in the Southeast, I would. Uh, it would either be Chattanooga or Nashville, and Chattanooga is only about an hour and a half from Nashville, so at least I'm in, you know what I would consider a better part of the Southeast, but it's it's still the Southeast. It's like, I mean, it's like saying, you know, how's the food at McDonald's? I mean, well, <laughs> there are various it's items the on the menu. McDonald's. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, oh man, I, uh, I uh, listeners are probably tired of hearing it because I talk about it all the time, but I, I can't wait till I can one day make it back to the West Coast. So that's... Uh, so, and, that's, and what's holding you back? Just, you know, I've got kids now, they're in school, it's it's harder to, you know, yeah. uproot and do that. And the Yeah, and the, and the biggest thing is that it's, um, um, I mean, I have to say, where we live, I mean, it, scenically, it's, it's, it's very beautiful, and there's just no cheaper cost of living, you know? Right. I mean, I, yeah. I lived in LA for seven years, and it's, you know, I can live here for a tenth of what it cost me to live there, and... And I, I work for myself, so it's not like my uh, my income necessarily changes when I move to a new location, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah, same here. But except I, I, I do, li- Except I live in San Francisco, which is crazy, but... I would imagine, is that uh, is that even more of a, a expense-wise, is that even a higher cost of living than Los Angeles, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. It's really? uh, at least 50% more expensive. It's the most wow. expensive city in the country now. In fact, we have friends who move to New York because it's cheaper. <laughs> that is insane. If if you're moving, I just I, I I can't believe I heard that. I just can't believe I heard someone say that. That I'm I'm literally not joking. We literally, had, someone says, "Yeah, we're trying to downsize, save some money, so we're going to move to New York." <laughs> yeah, or uh, we're moving to New York, and we started looking at apartments, and oh my god, you can find stuff. It's there's actually apartments available, and they're cheaper than they are in San Francisco. That's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. I don't know. I, I don't have. I have tons of friends in San Francisco. But I don't have that great of an impression of the city. Um, people are always like, man, why don't you, what, what, what are you crazy? Why don't you like San Francisco? And it's, I don't know, I, I guess I've only really experienced the, the, the touristy San Francisco. Because when I lived in LA, we would take day trips up the coast and go to Pier 39 and, and walk around. And it was always just so packed with people and you could never, it was like hard to, it was so much traffic and you just couldn't get anywhere and 
and and that's my whole and that and, and walking across the Golden Gate Bridge. That's my whole experience of San Francisco. So I'm sure there's more to it than that. There's but, a, yeah, there's a little bit more to it. We uh, I haven't been to Pier 39 in I don't know six <laughs> years or something, and yeah. I've really only ever been twice since we've lived here. So um, you got to get out and, and check out the neighborhoods, you know, and and really see yeah. like how how locals live as opposed to the the crazy tourist stuff because it is pretty insane. I mean, we get people from all over the world. Um, Definitely, even yeah. even in our neighborhood, but well, the one thing that I did love about it was uh, the proximity to wine country because I I could you know Napa and Simi and uh, I mean I could uh, or not sorry Simi is Sonoma. LA Sonoma and Napa and, and those areas I could I've I've loved every vacation to those spots yeah and uh, and that's great that's uh, yeah we hit those regularly yeah so I mean. Speaking of that, lots of lots of changes happening for you. I mean, you are you're you're leaving behind San Francisco. You're moving to Portland. You're starting a blog. I mean, be honest with me, man. Have you are you? I mean, you're choosing to put yourself in closer closer proximity to Chase. I mean, have you have you joined like a cult or something or a commune? Like, <laughs> yeah, I joined I joined his cult a couple of years ago. This is a safe um, place, Corbett. I mean, nothing, we had, nothing here will go beyond the walls of this podcast. So right, right. you say whatever you want. He uh, he lived down here in the Bay Area for a year. So luckily, I, I got a pretty good taste of it. Um, <laughs> but he was in the East Bay and there was 45 minutes separating us. So um, a little, a little bit of a buffer zone. So in Portland, we're going to be walking distance from one another. And that's going to be interesting for sure. That would be. It seems like it would in some ways it would be a dream come true and also a... Uh, um, a nightmare, you know, nothing. Uh, I, I, lo- I love Chase, but it's like, uh, <laughs> it's like, uh, I think, man, I just want to spend all my time with you. And then after four hours, I'm like, I need to take a break. So <laughs> you gotta, you gotta give him two days and then he, he slows down. Oh, okay. That's what it is. <laughs> That's it. You just, you, you're in that, you're right in that threshold, four hours. It's right. not quite enough. It's too much, but not quite enough. So what's, uh, what's prompting all the, um, um, all, all these, these changes going on? Um, well, we're from the Northwest originally, my wife and I, so, uh, we have lived here in San Francisco for 10 years and, uh, we've considered Portland for a while. I don't know. It's always sort of been in the back of our mind. And, um, every year we kind of run the, uh, what I call the weighted average decision matrix. It's a super geeky way of doing a pros and cons (laughs) list. And, um, and it started to kind of Portland started to kind of edge out San Francisco for a number of reasons for us. Um, you know, cost of living is one of them. Uh, especially because we can live anywhere. She's an artist and, and, uh, can, can sort of live anywhere. Although we're a little bit nervous about what Portland means, given that San Francisco is a decent art city. It's not the best. It's not like New York, um, by any means, but it's okay. And we're not exactly sure what Portland's like. So there's definitely some concerns and we don't know what it's going to be like until we get up there. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you you know that you haven't visited, I'm sure you spent time there though, right? Oh yeah, we've spent a lot of time there, but you know, spending a week or two at a time and, sure, and yeah. actually living somewhere is a whole different ballgame. Especially when uh, it's somewhere with weather like Portland, where you know it's it it really does rain solid for six months. Um, but luckily, for three of those months, we will be in Mexico because we spend every winter down there. So that that made Portland a lot more doable when we started doing winters in Mexico. Oh, uh, okay. So, just out of curiosity, do you are, are you okay? Do you are you okay with, or do you like, or prefer the kind of rainy, gloomy weather, or that's that's one thing you're kind of worried about disliking? 
I, I don't mind it now, but it's sort of, it's like an allergy. I think it builds over time. And, uh, after I had lived there, we left the Northwest, I guess I was 30, I I was 25 or so. Yeah. Not that old yet. But, um, and, uh, and at that point it was like, I had had way too much, you know, we had been in the rain way too much and couldn't wait to get out. And California was a nice antidote for that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Although, you know, climate change has made Portland summers nicer and nicer every year, it seems like. <laughs> and um, and like I said, three months down in, in the sun in Mexico is uh, a pretty good balance. Well, it's it's weird, man. It's like, I don't know. And I, I find I'm, I'm having to accept that maybe this is just the way life is going to be. But um, uh, like I need I need the change, I guess, no, no matter what it is. After a certain amount of time, I always get tired of it. So like after seven years in L.A., um, it, this is this also sounds equally as strange to say as I'm moving to New York to save money. But, you know, I was I was tired of year round sunshine. You know, it sounds, right. sounds ridiculous, but there are no seasons, you know, and I grew up on the East Coast. And so I missed the seasons and I couldn't wait to get out. But then after being, you know, in the Southeast for, well, it's been another seven or eight years now. It's like I I wish, you know, I'm ready for that West Coast climate again. But I imagine no matter where you end up, um, everything, I mean, then that, that, that's kind of one of the themes of the show. I think everyone I've talked to is that, you know, talking about where we're going to live or weather or business and entrepreneurship, um, everything gets old at some point. Everything turns into a job. Everything loses its allure. And, and it's kind of that struggle of, do you just stick with it or do you constantly just move to the next thing that, that gives you that sense of newness and excitement, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's a little different, um, you know, thinking about where you're going to live versus a business, like with a business, you never know if you're working on something that is eventually going to take off. If you just grind it out long enough with living somewhere, I don't know. We like to, we think, we feel like San Francisco has changed a lot, um, Mm. over the past 10 years, just mostly because of this focus on tech and money, um, right now and, uh, things getting so expensive because, the tech companies down here, you know, Facebook and Google and everybody else. I mean, God, we have like, you know, nine out of 10 big tech companies, it seems like are in the Bay Area and it's just driven prices up. And the people that are moving here are young and have a lot of money in their pocket, but they're not very culturally aware. They don't really Mm. care about the history of San Francisco, at least it seems. Um, And they're not really interested in in arts and creativity and, um, you know, writers and things that really made this city what it is. Yeah, yeah. And um, it just feels like Portland cares more about those sorts of things at this point. Culturally, um, it's going to be a better fit for us. So we'll see. I mean, you know, San Francisco still is the epicenter, I think, of interesting new things happening for yeah. for, for tech at least. Um, and so we'll miss that because things do happen here first and um, it'll be an adjustment. But uh, it's an adventure as well. And I always notice that uh, when you change something big in your life, you really remember that period very well. And, um, whereas if you don't change things, you know, this is just how the memory works, I guess old situations kind of just blur together. And I I couldn't tell you now that we've been here for 10 years, what happened when I can barely remember that, except I I do recall very well the first couple of years when I started a new business and my wife was in grad school and we just moved here, but then the past, you know, seven or so it's like, it's been a blur. And so partly moving is just 
to open a new chapter in our lives so that, you know, as we're older, we can look back and see some clear delineations between things. And yeah. it, it becomes easy to move from a place like San Francisco because everyone leaves here eventually. <laughs> yeah. And you have this, um, this constant turnover of friends. So mm. every three years or so, a wave of people comes through, you know, whether it was grad school or people who moved out here for a startup or whatever, um, people come and they see and they, um, they eventually go back to wherever they're from. And, uh, and so we've had to make three different waves of friends. And now this last one, we just had a mass exodus of really close friends this year. Um, and this last one just seemed like, okay, it's time for us to go too. I can't, I can't bear to have to make a whole new group of friends again. You know, I experienced the same thing in LA and that's, you know, part of what I've always, I've wondered is, you know, I tend to associate the locations with, whether or not I uh, mean to, they just naturally get associated with stages of my life. So when I when I look back fondly at a certain place or spot, I don't know really whether it's the place or whether it was that stage of life or the group of friends that were there. Because, for example, if we moved back to L.A. now, it wouldn't be like it was 10 years ago. You know, 10 years ago or when I first moved out there in the early 2000s, you know, um, I was single and I had a certain group of friends and, and it was a great, it was a great, you know, I was in my early 20s. It was a great time of life and none of them live there anymore. So moving back now, I have a sense that, you know, maybe we'd get there and I'd realize what I was actually chasing was was not really based on the location. You know what I mean? Right. Right. A hundred percent. And, and, um, you know, that we've noticed that as well, the town that we live in in Mexico is this tiny little hole in the wall kind of place without a whole lot of charm, except that it is directly on the beach, which is nice. Um, but the community that we've built there really makes it for us. It feels like a second home because we know everyone in the whole town. Yeah. And we're realizing that about, you know, where you live, it really, how you feel about it really depends on who you know. And so when we move to Portland, um, we have all kinds of plans for really getting in and just almost attacking, you know, the city in terms of getting to know people and throwing a lot of dinner parties and, um, reconnecting with people that we already know and asking for new introductions and things like that. And, and just trying to be very aware of it and trying yeah. to make that first year about meeting as many people as possible and just being as social as possible to really get those roots planted early. Um, and, uh, and realizing that, everything else about a city that you may like or dislike can kind of fade to the background if you have a really good core group of friends. Totally. And it's actually, I think, um, I think doing that sometimes is hard for, well, it's hard for me anyway, as a person who is self-employed and have been and has been for a long time. And I, I often feel like my main community at this point in my life is, is online. And, you know, I, sometimes I miss the days of, you know, the one thing I miss about the days of employment, reg, you know, traditional employment and that kind of thing is that it, it, I don't know, it just forced me into more social situations. And it's it's very easy to just disappear into my home office and my business and, and really only interact with people that I'm connected to online. And, you know, going down, going and having a cup of coffee or a beer with a, a real person is almost like a... Uh, it feels strange. You know, it's like, what is this I'm doing? I'm not used to this. And yeah. uh, you kind of have to force yourself in this line of work, I think, to do that. But um, I don't know. Part of it, too, is just this. I think so many people like you You talked about you have the second uh, place in Mexico. And I had a long conversation with a buddy of mine about this recently. It's like everyone 
has these dreams, um, whatever it may be, you know, I want to move to Hawaii someday or I want to, you know, do this or that thing. And uh, and they never do it. You know, they just don't do it because it's so much easier just to keep doing what you're doing than it is to make a drastic change like that. And I don't want to be that way. You know, a part of me feels like, you know, if there's something we want to do, we should just do it because or we're going to wind up, you know, 60 and be like, how come we didn't do any of these things? You know, we just talked about them for 30 years, you know? Yeah. And um, there's that that pressure too, you know? Totally. It reminds me of that, um, that quote, uh, the Thoreau quote, uh, which is most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to end up like that. Um, That's like my greatest fear, honestly. I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, like I said, if, if you've had any conversations with Chase or listened to any of our conversations or something or listen to the Fizzle show, then, you know, it tends to be a lot of talk about those type of things. And, you know, I don't fear bankruptcy or losing my job or or anything. But seriously, that's probably one of my biggest fears is just waking up. The time passes so fast, you know, waking up one day and I'm in my 60s and there's not much time left. And I haven't done any of the things I've really wanted to do because they required a certain amount of uh risk to just do it and and be okay with the consequences right or the opposite of risk which is breaking free from the comfort that you enjoy day to day you know and yeah. and i think i think moving making a big move from one place to another is a really great way to um to kind of force yourself to examine a lot of different things in your life it, it's like if you're making a move across country you have to meet new people anyway. You have to mm-hmm. get to know a new place anyway. Um, it's really easy to think about doing new things for work or new hobbies or whatever. When yeah. we moved to San Francisco, it was the perfect time for me to finally um, jump into entrepreneurship. We, we moved here uh, for my wife to go to grad school and I reconnected with uh, a former colleague of mine just to kind of, you know, plug into the city and get to know as many people as I could. And, um, he happened to be working on a startup and because we had just moved here and because I wasn't so comfortable, it was easy to say, yeah, I'll, um, I'll see about doing that with you. Like, let's talk about it. And, you know, one thing led to another and, um, and that kind of set off a big chain of events, I think for me. Um, and, and then again, you know, when that startup sort of collapsed after a few years, I, was left with a lot of questions about what I wanted to do next. And instead of just jumping into the next thing, my wife and I took a sabbatical and we went to Mexico on a road trip for eight months. Yeah. And, um, and so again, it was kind of like, well, you know, I don't have that other thing to rely on anymore. And so, you know, maybe there's a strategy of pulling the rug out from under yourself once in a while, you know, or, um, if you lose your job for some reason, or if you're forced to move or if something, you know, really, dire happens in your life instead of dwelling on it and trying to get back to the comfort that you once knew, um, maybe that's the time to set sail and, and look for something entirely new. It's true. And it's, it's weird though, that you talk about when you said the, the opposite of risk and, and the, you know, um, breaking free of the comfort. Um, a lot of times that comfort isn't even comfortable. You know, it's not, it's not even like, uh, it's, it's just, um, it's just what it's just you familiar. know. Yeah. It's yeah. familiar. It's like, you may not even like it or enjoy it. It's just hard <laughs> right. to, it's hard to imagine. Um, just, it's easier just to stick to your routine, even if you hate your routine than it is to 
take a big, you know, sort of leap and change everything up. You yeah, know? and it's 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 not unlike people who stick in really crappy relationships, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for, for decades or whatever. <laughs> it is it is kind of it is funny. I don't, I don't know. So uh, this move to Portland, um, you know, I know that you were in San Francisco. I mean, this is a little inside uh, baseball fizzle history here for for people who are listening and aren't, aren't familiar with fizzle, but. Um, uh, you you were in Portland, and then Chase, your business partner, moved from. I'm sorry, you were in San Francisco. Chase moved from Portland to San Francisco, and then he moved back to Portland. And now you're moving to Portland. Um, is this, you know, I'm assuming part of this is just because you know Chase is there, and it's. I mean, have you have you found that it's been harder to work? Um, um, on the business long distance sort of distributed than it was when you were together in the same city? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I've done it both ways. My first startup, you know, was a quote unquote traditional startup. We raised venture capital and um, built an office and had 10 employees and all of us lived and worked in the same place. And then uh, in 2009, starting with the sabbatical that I took for about two years, I was totally independent and did a lot of traveling and kind of worked wherever there was an internet connection. And, um, you know, now since, uh, about two and a half years ago, when Chase and I started working together, we've been building more of a team and, you know, I'm not just solo anymore. So there's, um, three of us, there were four of us at one point this year mm-hmm. and you start to see the limitations of being a completely distributed team. Yeah. Um, and I think there are pros and cons and, you know, there's a lot of freedom and flexibility that comes with being, a distributed team. And I, you know, still intend to go to Mexico and to travel in the summers occasionally. Um, and I don't want to give that up, but I think there's a hybrid model that is going to work well for us, or at least that I'm excited about for the next few years, which is, um, you know, Chase and I will live in the same place. We may or may not convince other people who in the company to move out there. <laughs> other uh, people hint, who hint, might be in uh, the ATL, for example. Right. Yeah. People that may listen to this, who knows. Um, <laughs> but I know that the next person we hire will probably look for someone who can be in Portland for a majority of the year, at least. I don't yeah. want I don't want to create a company where everybody's forced to live in the same place. Um, I would love for people to be able to take, you know, a good chunk of the year and go live somewhere else, partly selfishly, just because that's what I want to do. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to have a, an office where everyone's expected to come in every day. I like the, um, you know, like 37 signals model. They have a partly distributed company. Um, they have a preference for people who live in Chicago and they do have a physical office, but it's not a requirement that people go there. Maybe you have company tradition where certain days of the week, everybody tends to be there because that's when you, um, when you get FaceTime in. But what I've heard about doing creative work, like all of us do, um, you know, there, there's, there are advantages to being face to face, especially when you're doing the brainstorming stuff and the bigger picture sort of thinking. Yeah. But when it comes time to actually put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard, um, you need long, un- uninterrupted stretches of time. And um, so I think that that hybrid will be interesting, you know, working in an office together a couple of days a week. Um, for some people who work better in an office, they can go there more often if they want to. But I tend to prefer to start work in my pajamas every day. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll probably continue to do that. Well, I think it depends on the kind of business, too. Like if you look at Fizzle, um and you guys do the podcast and, and, you know, all that various content creation. I mean, I know from personal experience, um, you know, I, I started, you know, I, I wanted to, uh, I don't know, I guess it was about six months ago. I, I was so tired of doing these shows over Skype 
and uh, my podcasting hero is is Mark Marin. You know, the guy. Yep. I, I wish I was, and, and so and I thought, man, I wish I could do in person interviews like he does. And so I started driving to Nashville, and uh, you know, interviewing bands and musicians in person. And it's it's such a different experience doing that stuff in the same room than over a hangout or over even a video Skype. I'm sure that. With, with the type of business that you guys are running, um, certain things like that are just going to be way better when you can sit down in person and record your podcast or your video than, than have to do that, you know, just through video conference or something. A hundred percent. I mean, we we prefer to do podcasts in person and we try to batch them to some degree uh, yeah. whenever Chase is down here, if I'm up there, because there is this chemistry that happens and there are these, yeah. you know, body language things that you can read totally, yeah. that just make the, it just feels like a higher bandwidth conversation to me. Yeah. Um, and, and so we do like that. And, and that's one of the things that I look forward to. I also look forward to just, you know, if, if you have to, let's say we, in within fizzle, we film a lot of courses, mm-hmm. um, which require a lot of video production and scripting and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And when you do that by yourself, it's really easy to procrastinate for a long time. Whereas if, you know, we say, okay, on Tuesday, that's when we're going to film, you know, and you have somebody that's headed to, to meet you there. Um, it's just harder to come up with excuses. So I like to use that, that natural, um, that natural guilt or whatever of, well, he's going, I have to show up uh, (laughs) to get things done. That's interesting though. Um, that's one, one of the reasons I would love to move back to LA is just because, um, I felt like I would have closer proximity to, um, uh, guests and stuff for podcasting and I could potentially do more in-person stuff. And, yep. you know, you look at the courses you guys offer in Fizzle and there's, you know, it's a veritable, you know, like corny. Dram- code, yeah. yeah. It's a dramatic, dramatic person a of, of like all the big famous, you know, people in the online business industry. Like, do you think it'll be harder to get them up to Portland to do this stuff than it was to get them into San Francisco to do this stuff? You know? Yeah, totally. That's something to be concerned about. I mean, San Francisco is one of those places where you can almost guarantee that anybody you're going to want to talk to will we'll be, be here at some point. Yeah, we'll be here at some <laughs> point within a year or at least two years time. Yeah. Um, and you can just piggyback on stuff. Um, but for the courses that we shoot, a lot of times that's a very specific trip. And, um, you know, we'll fly people out and, and put them up for a couple of days and, and just get the course done in, in two days. And, um, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because creative live is one of the companies that we look at a lot because they're yeah. in a similar space and they have, they're their blowing original, up, man. They're they just like, up. I, I had not even heard of them until literally, I don't know, a month, two months ago. And it's, it's one of those, it's like YouTube, man. I go onto that site and it's just, before I know it, I've bookmarked like 50 courses I want to take, you know, it's like, how are they getting, how are they producing all this stuff? But well, I, I interrupted you. What were you going to say about them though? Well, so, you know, I, I went to their office here in San Francisco and I believe it's their second office. They actually started in Seattle where their founder is from. And, um, you know, they raised a bunch of money. And so part of that answer is they have this incredible video production studio. When you mm. go in there, it's very much like a TV studio. In fact, nicer yeah. in a lot of ways than than a local TV station would be. Um, and they have dozens of people on staff. And it's very much, you know, like a, a very professional sort of production. Whereas if you film a course for Fizzle, you're going to be in our quote unquote, home, you know, home office yeah. and uh, maybe sleeping on one of our couches. But that's another story. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if Creative Live didn't open that office here in San Francisco, 
partly because it was easier to get people out here and easier to find the right kind of talent um, versus up in Seattle. I know that they still film things in both locations, but that's going to be a big question mark for us. We run um, a video series that we call Founder Stories, which are um, sort of like, you know, what we're doing right now. We yeah. sit down with interesting people and, uh, or I like to think anyway, and um, <laughs> and talk to them about their business. And it has a little bit, you know, more of a uh, predefined flow to it. Sure. Um, and we end up, you know, talking about what they would have done differently and things like that. But our requirement for that is that it's a multi-camera in-person interview. So it's, you know, high quality uh, video interview. And we only do those in person. And just thinking about the ones that we've shot so far, you know, the majority have been in here in San Francisco. We've done some in San Diego and L.A. and other places as well, and a handful of them in Portland. And that's going to be tricky for next year. And I, I don't know exactly what we're going to do there. Um, we may just, you know, part of me likes to think that if if I'm going to be in Portland and Chase's as well, that maybe we'll um, we'll do our part to expose really interesting people that are that just happen to be in Portland, because I'm sure. You know, there are enough if you keep digging deeper and deeper. And maybe that'll make it more interesting because instead of just covering the exact same people that everybody seems to be covering now yeah. on podcasts and things like that, we'll find some people that are a little bit underexposed and, and maybe doing things that are just as interesting. Yeah, it is. I don't know. I do, I do find that tough because it's I, I get questions about it all the time. I mean, the the previous iteration of this show was was focused on the web industry and and web designers and for web designers and developers, and it was very specific to that. And so I get questions all the time, like, "How did you get this person on your show or that person?" And it's it's a it is it is definitely a struggle because part of you wants to make money or or do something that is going to be seen by a lot of people, and you know in your head that. You know the 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 bigger names are are going to draw um um a, a bigger audience and and that kind of stuff, but then there's this other part of me, that that this other part that's currently winning the battle, which is that um uh I I'm tired of just putting out noise, man. I'm tired of just putting out more of the same shit that everyone else does. You know, right. and and uh, but the the risk of that is that if, if you're not sort of famous or, or at least a personality uh, in and of yourself yet, um, uh, you know, you, you're going to have a harder road building um, building an audience or a, an income or whatever from you know, avoiding all the people that are on the uh, the podcast circuit, so, so, to, so to say, you know, in online right. business and entrepreneurship, you know. <laughs> I, I like that you said um, that that's the direction that's currently winning because yeah, yeah. as an entrepreneur, like all of us have this in, internal struggle going on all the time that's pulling us in 10 different directions. Um, and usually it feels more like there's just two directions, right? It's it's sort of a binary thing. It's like either I fulfill this deep creative desire to do work that matters that mm -hmm. people will find organically over time and they're going to love it for the quality of it or I sell out and I go where I think the interest is um, and kind of duplicate what a lot of other people are doing yeah. because it's proven to work. Um, and we kind of feel like we're trapped in the middle. And, and we have that conversation all the time on the Fizzle show and just internally with the team. Um, I don't know what the answer is. You know, I think there are a million different ways to win. And um, it you just have to, you know, be at the right place at the right time, not to sound cliche, but um, have you seen that uh, the XOXO talk about the lottery tickets? 
Or did you hear us talk I, about that on the show? I haven't seen that one yet. Chase has told me like 10 times I need to watch that, but I haven't yet. I haven't watched it yet. Okay. You do need to watch it. Um, it's, uh, I believe it's uh, Darius Kazimi is the guy that that um, that did the talk at XOXO in Portland last year. And um, really, the, at the end of the day, the idea is just that you can only do so much to um, to create a really great product. And you never know what thing is going to take off and what thing isn't. And right. a lot of times the, the solution is just to buy more lottery tickets because each project that you do is essentially a lottery ticket and you can't get any better at winning the lottery. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like the uh, there was this Kickstarter campaign for a cooler. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called The Coolest. And hmm. um, it uh, it did some insane amount of uh, money on Kickstarter, millions of dollars. And basically hmm. it's this cooler that has an integrated radio and a blender and all kinds of crazy shit. If you brought this <laughs> to a party or to the beach or something, yeah. people would be like their minds would be blown. And so you'd be the coolest person at the party. And you see this thing and you're like, oh, of course. You know, this makes total sense. Yeah. The design is just kitschy enough. The name is just cheesy enough. The amount of stuff that they shoved into it is just insane enough that, of course, this thing would work, right? Mm -hmm. But then you hear the full story and you realize that the same guy released the exact same product on Kickstarter a handful of months before and it totally tanked. Yeah. And the only thing that changed was, well, he relaunched it on Kickstarter and maybe the right person heard about it. You know, maybe he told the right person about it or, you know, maybe somebody just happened to be trolling Twitter at the right time and they mentioned it or maybe just, you know, it was the right time of year or something culturally had taken root yeah. in, in everybody who bought it. And so it, it eventually took off, but the product was exactly the same. And so there's just too many variables that you can't control and you can't beat yourself up if something doesn't take off. Um you know, and, and think that it wasn't good enough. You know, you did everything you could, everything that you knew at the time to create a really great product. And maybe it just wasn't in the cards for it to take off for you at that time. Yeah. I mean, that's the, 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 the what all the advice that I hear from ev everyone I've had on the show and anyone I talk to about these topics, it, it all boils down to basically uh, just showing up and just to keep showing up. And, but I think the, it's not to just show up for the sake of, of showing up. It's because, you know, if you, if you keep showing up, then, you know, you're increasing your chances of, you know, quote, sort of being discovered, you know, of, right. you know, eventually, eventually, you know, it, you know, if you want to be in the right place at the right time, you have to be in places, you know, you, you, <laughs> exactly. have, to, you have to, you have to be moving, you know, um, to, you know, the right place and right time isn't just going to find you, you know? And so yep. I think that's the point of just showing up and keeping at it and keep trying things because eventually, like you said, um, one of them, you know, you, you just, you throw enough things at the wall and something's going to stick, but that's, that's that's actually that, that's a I think that's a good thing and a bad thing for us entrepreneurs because because that is so hard, you know, the vast majority of people aren't going to do it. So it 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 in a way it's it's a good thing for us because our chances of success are greater because it takes a lot of hard work to just keep trying when nothing is working, but at the same time, you know. It is a lot of hard work. And that was what Chase and I's whole conversation was about, was almost this like, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> I was laughing when you were talking about it because it was exactly what Chase and I spent two hours uh, discussing was this, this desire to, 
you know, produce something of value, but feeling like the only way that you can make money from it is essentially wrap it in shit, you know, essentially, essentially wrap it in all the, 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 the webinars and the bullshit marketing tactics and the, you know, all the stuff that we, that we hate, you know, the reality is that stuff works. It works for a reason, but you feel dirty, like doing it, you know? Um, and it's like, well, I can sit here and, and record my songs and no one can ever hear them. Or as you said, you kind of sell out, but then millions of people hear your music. So it's, it's just this constant battle of, you know, um, I don't know. I don't even, it's just, it's, it's a constant yeah. battle, you know? Well, and I, I think we, we come to detest people who seem to be completely okay with doing all of those things. We feel like, we feel like they have an unfair advantage sometimes because something about their DNA just makes them able to do the self-promotion thing to the to the hilt yeah. and to use any tactic under the sun. And we see people who really make that work despite having kind of a mediocre product. And yeah. um, I think that's really what the struggle is. You know, can I can I allow myself to create something that's just kind of so-so and then, you know, figure out how to use all of these tactics to put a ton of time and energy just into the promotion aspect? And if I did that, would my thing take off? And and that's another question. And I think sometimes this whole conversation can be just sour grapes because really, you know, you could do all of that promotion stuff and it's not a guarantee that you're thing yeah. is going to take off. It may be that your thing isn't, isn't good enough or it's not, it's just that it's not, um, not the kind of thing that's going to appeal to a massive audience for some reason. And, yeah. and that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Um, you know, if, if you love it and you feel like a core group of people love your thing and, and um, you're, you're changing their lives in some meaningful way, then it doesn't mean that everything on this earth has to go, you know, viral. Um, right. Well, there's that a lot was, of good stuff in the corners. Yeah. That, that was the kind of the point of our conversation, which was sparked by, um, a kind of rant I, I did on the second to last episode of um, the last TGM. I, I, I name everything the Gently Mad if you didn't know, but it's cool. It's <laughs> a good name. Stick with it. You know, uh, I don't have any other names in my in my arsenal. But um, and and that's what sparked the whole uh, conversation with Chase was like I started to wonder is is it possible to I almost wonder if it's possible to find you know true meaning in in our work, you know, or whether, you know, work is work and, and we, we find that meaning and value and stuff maybe elsewhere. And I mean, I do think it's possible. I mean, I look at what you guys are doing with fizzle and, and I don't find that cheesy or, you know, douchey at all. I mean, I find, I find it, you know, like your tagline, you know, the, the honest part of your, of your tagline. And, and I feel like, it's immensely valuable, but, um, it's, it is really a struggle when you're creating a new thing and you think, okay, I can use all these tactics here if I want to, but they seem really, um, you know, they just, I, I feel, I feel, um, I feel bad. Like, uh, I feel like a sleazy salesman using these tactics, you know, and, and, um, it's, I don't know. I don't know if you just have to get over that and go, you know what? These tactics work. So I'm going to use them because I want to make money and I want to do this thing. Or if, uh, or if that's considered selling out or I don't know, you know, it, and I, and I think it kind of depends on whose opinion you care about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, and the people who use all kinds of tactics, they really could it's care less. It's not sleazy to them. Yeah. <laughs> they, well, or maybe it is, but they could care less about what we think, you know, yeah. because at the end of the day, what matters to them is 
um, you know, how many sales they have, how many customers they have and what their customers are telling them. And, you know, maybe they're maybe their customers are are telling them that their lives are being changed. And, you know, even despite them using those tactics and maybe they feel like their product is so important that it is irresponsible not to use as many tactics as they can to get their thing in front of a lot of people, because yeah. otherwise they might not hear about it and they might not experience that transformation that they're trying to to give them. So I don't well, know if it's just justification or or what. I don't know. Like an example that I have is I think it was last summer or was I don't, I don't know when it was. It was a while back. I um I you know I'm by no means a uh, a, a web celebrity or anything. I've got you know. 15, 1600 followers on Twitter. Well, I woke up one morning and I had 30,000 followers on Twitter and it happened to like five of my friends too. They all had suddenly thousands of followers and, um, you know, we reported it to Twitter and it took about two or three months to get rid of, I mean, they were all of course bots and fake, but the interesting thing that I noticed was that during that month or so when I had 30,000 followers, um, People that I tweeted to or, or talked to or whatever, same exact conversations, tweets and stuff that had happened before, I suddenly got instant follows by those people and they would actually respond and more things happened. And I was like, this is very, this is a very interesting case study that right. um, now that I have 30,000 followers, uh, people are responding to me. And so it... Um, it made me think like, yeah, we all would ridicule someone who went out and bought, you know, 20,000 Twitter followers. But the fact is, if you do it, um, people are, you know, um, uh, p- the chances are more likely that, you know, people are going to uh, respond more because that's a metric that they respect, you know. And this is, um, you know, this is all stuff. I don't know if you've read Influenced by Robert Cialdini, but this is all just root fundamental human psychology stuff that works because you know that um for example when a restaurant gets hot in your town everyone wants to go there and uh, how many times have you gone and been like no it was fine but it definitely wasn't worth waiting in line for an hour yeah you know because there's this other spot that's empty and um if you have an empty restaurant if there are no cars in the parking lot or whatever people just are not going to come in because as humans we you know, what's the first thing you do when you want to buy something? You go and look at reviews, right? Exactly. You go and scour yeah. for reviews to find out what other people think about it. And so we inform our opinions based on what other people think. And and seeing that someone has 30,000 Twitter followers tells you that, oh, 30,000 other people must assume that that person is is important for some reason. And so I should follow them for a while right. and figure out for myself if I think they're important. You know, I'll, I'll be but, frank. But, oh, go ahead. Go sorry. Ahead. Uh, I know people who are, you know, web celebrities or whatever, who at some point did purchase tens of thousands of Twitter followers. I, I do too. And that, you know, the, the, the whole reason I brought that up is because it presents an interesting dilemma in that, again, if, you know, if, if, you know, we would, we tend to frown upon that kind of activity, but it, it's the same thing when I'm talking about these tactics, you know, I know that if, if you're going to launch something or release something and you go and you you buy Facebook likes and you buy Twitter followers and you do those kind of things that people would kind of look down on, you know, it it does work in in many cases. And so it again, like you said, it, or like I said, one of us said, it's like you know, sometimes like if you want to make money, it's it's like uh, you it's it's difficult, you know, you know that that's going to help you, so it's really tempting to do it, even though you would you know. Uh, you you would criticize someone else for doing it, you know? 
And and this is, you know, I think where um, we all just have to examine our own internal compass. And um, but I think, you know, it's it's easy to kind of dismiss all of those self-promotional tactics and be like, oh, I, I can't do any of that stuff, yeah. you know, aside from maybe, you know, telling people that I know they should check out my show or something. Yeah, um, it's easy to kind of be in that camp. And and that's where I think you end up being a broke idealist. And um, I, you know, I do believe it, it is possible to create a really great product and for it to go nowhere um, yeah. if you're not willing to promote it at all. Um, and so, you know, we all have to examine our own internal compass, but I think it's you, you owe it to yourself to think about each individual tactic that you might um, be aware of. You know, mm-hmm. if you watch people, you know, web celebrities or, or just people that you admire or people that you don't respect too much, watch what they do. And observe each individual tactic and kind of pick it apart and think about for yourself, okay, what does this mean? How are they going about this? What's the end result? And am I am I being uh, truthful and ethical with people? Um, is it just something about the way this thing looks and smells that's off? And is there mm-hmm. some way, you know, you know, from the design world, you can dress some things up and, you know, maybe it goes from being, oh my God, that's a horrible, shitty pop-up on somebody's website to oh, wow, that's clever how they did that. You know, it, it looks really cool well, you, because yeah. of this effect they're doing. And and so maybe then the threshold is different, you know? It, it's interesting that you mentioned the pop-ups because you, uh, you, you in fact, tweeted recently something, or what it was, but you were like, something like, I was going to share your article, but your shitty pop-up um, asking me to subscribe uh, changed my mind or something to that effect, you know? <laughs> and um, yep. which is great. I feel the same way. I hate those pop-ups. But... If you do the research, which I've done, those pop-ups do convert. They convert far better than um, a newsletter sign-up box on somewhere else on your webpage, and that's why people use them. So it's kind of like, again, I don't know if it's just perception or, like you said, it's just whose opinion do you care about, but it's things like that. Like, you know, I know that this will help me, but... My circle looks down on this, so right, that right. drives so, me to not want to do it, you know? And so here's the thing, though, and, and this is why to say that, you know, pop-ups work, so, it, so it, it makes me feel conflicted, I think can make you feel like that's true of all tactics. But here's where I think pop-ups are different. When you say pop-ups convert better, the problem is what's missing from that equation is who do they work better on? Hmm. And is that the kind of audience that I want to be building? Yeah, and that's really interesting. It, and it could very well be that, sure, they work equally as well on Adam Clark as they do on some, uh, you know, mother in um, Minnesota who just got on the internet and is looking for knitting information, you know, and 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 maybe that's not the right person that you're trying to reach for this particular project or something. Um, the other thing is, they may work on that particular audience, but for this person in in particular that I'm talking about with this, my my tweet said, uh, fuck your huge, annoying double pop-ups on your blog. I was just about to link to your post, <laughs> but forget it. Yeah. And I was being honest. I literally just went to Twitter while I was feeling this because, you know, I was looking for articles on a specific topic that I was about to include in a newsletter. And I went to my usual places, you know, there were like 10 different people mm-hmm. and I did a Google search. And I found some articles and now, you know, what I feel like is when I'm about to share an article, I have to think into the future. Okay, what's the value of this article and how is my audience going to feel when I referred them to this site 
that's going to bombard them with these annoying pop-ups. But then what if someone from my audience gets on that list and then how are they going to be treated over the next couple of weeks? And for someone who's using those pop-ups, yes, they might win the short-term game to get more subscribers of questionable value, Mm -hmm. but they may lose the influence game over time. You You do this sort of stuff enough and you lose favor with the people who matter, the people who might link to your stuff or who might mention you in a speech or something. And um, and and your credibility goes down the drain. And I think it can take you down over time. It is it is really interesting because that's the thing. I mean, the work, the, you know, for example, the buying Twitter, fo- Twitter followers, you know, I, I just proved that, you know, that does have an effect on um, the, the way people view you. But. You know, if someone found out, which is easy enough to do these days, and decided to tweet, um, you know, go to, go to twitteraudit.com and, and look at Adam Clark's followers and, you know, 73% are fake, you know, he probably purchased them all, you know, then that 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 kills whatever you may have gained because you just lost, you know, whatever influence people gave you for that following, you know, you've now lost and, and it, and and you're actually in a negative position you're going to, it's going to be harder to get back to gain their trust. And if you'd never done it in the first place, you know, and, um, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a very, it's, a it's, it's, it's conflicting thing to know. It is conflicting and it's, and it's very much a gray area because, you know, it's, it's easy to read a tweet like that from me and, and I guess just conclude that all pop-ups are bad or whatever. And I'm not even condemning all pop-ups in this case, there was literally a double pop-up and it was huge. It like takes up the whole (laughs) screen. It's right when you're in the middle of reading something Uh, and I, and I'm like, God damn it. And I have to click close. And it's one of those annoying ones. that's like, do you want a bigger penis and a million (laughs) dollars? And you have to click the button that says, no, I want a small penis and no dollars. Right. And, and, and it's like, great. And so once I click that, then another one of those things popped up, like, are you sure? And so it just kind of was over the threshold for me. I wonder if like, you know, would you say, I mean, this might be an obvious question, but it kind of seems to me like it makes me think about, um, should we be more concerned about our, our peers in the industry and our circle of friends or our audience? Like, like you said, it, it depends on your audience. So, you know, if, if you're if certain tactics and certain types of content or whatever are are going to appeal to your audience, is, is that what matters? Even if your peers and friends will will find that kind of you know ridiculous or quote selling out or whatever. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. I think there could be a case where the only people you care about are your peers and the influencers. And I I don't know this for sure, but I just had this thought recently. Like, what if you know, let's say you start a new blog and your entire goal is to talk to people who matter, the the influence makers, because you just you just pointed out with the whole Twitter case study. It's like most people don't really think for themselves. They just look to the clues. Yeah. They look to the influencers. They look to the re- reviews and the social proof. And so maybe what matters is not influencing each individual person that comes to your site, but reaching the people whose opinion matters because that's how you're going to grow an audience anyway, you know, yeah. when those people start to link to you. So, I, you know, I think at a minimum, um, you need to be trying to do both. But I'll take, you know, having influence over some of the friends that I have personally um, that I've worked very hard to cultivate. I'll take that over. Um, some of them to me are worth 
a hundred thousand email subscribers. Some yeah. of the people that I that I know and and that I have the ability to have conversations with, it might change their mind. You know, it's tough because um, I, I feel the same way. But if we're just going to speak in in purely practical terms, you know, I, I, I mean. I, believe me, I feel the same way you do. I would much rather have the respect of guys like you and Chase and Corbett and Barrett than, you know, thousands of people out there on Twitter. But uh, my peers aren't going to be able to sustain a, a business, you know, and that's that's where some of the some of the dilemma is. I mean, that that's not necessarily, uh, you know, the uh, the example I will give is when I was doing focusing on web design full time, I discovered the same thing is that I really enjoyed working for my peers instead of working for some random client. So I built my whole business around making my peers my clients. So I, I focused on a particular aspect of the web industry that most of my peers needed and and uh, basically serviced them. So I found a way to make my clients or quote audience my peers, but with selling products and a lot of the kind of stuff we're talking about, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult because, uh, as I said, you know, your, your peer group isn't necessarily the people who are going to be buying the things you're selling. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, it's, um, it's it's one of these things that's impossible to know because there's just too many variables and and too much time goes by in between when you influence someone and when maybe that pays yeah. off down the road. Um, and you know, and to be honest, I, I guess the the proof for me in in terms of what I believe is in how I do business, and that is that we try very hard to both influence um, peers as well as our customers directly. And something else that I've noticed is that. People that you consider just readers or listeners or customers oftentimes eventually become your peers. And so oh, yeah, influencing yeah. them at the right time can lead to very valuable relationships down the line. So that's know, happened to me too. Yeah, exactly. But the language that you use to influence your peers, you know, will affect your customers or potential customers in some way as well. So it's kind of a straw man argument to yeah, some degree, I think. I think it, it just, you know, for example, the one reason I rebooted the show and what I'm, you know, um, I about four months ago, I had an idea for, you know, I decided I want to prove, you know, I'm, I'm going to make money from a podcast and I'm going to prove that, you know, that's not only possible for the names we've all heard of, but that's possible for a regular person like me. And I devised this whole plan. And um, but then about a month into it, I just felt like, um, uh, this is, this is total shit. It's just, it's just noise. All I'm doing is copying a pattern that I've seen be successful. And what made it, what made me realize that is I was talking to a friend and he's like, so who's, who's your guest list on this new show? And I read him the guest list and he's like, so basically you just copied so-and-so's guest list. And I was like, yeah, actually that's what I did. <laughs> and, and I realized this is stupid. I'm, I mean, you know, um, I, in the, in the talk with Chase, I was like, listen, if I was trying to make money from the show, it would have been 29 minutes long. And I would have asked you the same six questions I would ask everyone else. And it would all be about how you succeeded and how they can follow your path to success and how you can level up your business and, you know, whatever buzzword you want to use. And, it sounds like I'm I'm picking on anyone who chooses to do that, and that's that's not the case. But I just found for me, I wasn't being authentic. And and the one thing I found is when I connect the most with my audience is when I'm being just exactly who I am. And so some people are the inspirational, you know, 
online business web tactics person. And that's who they are. And so I think it's okay for them. But for me, when I try to be that guy, it just doesn't work, you know, and and when I just be who I am, um, that's what people respond to. So like with this show, it's like, it's, it's the opposite of an inspirational entrepreneurial show. I mean, it's, there's no end goal in mind. I mean, I'm sure there, there are great, like this conversation, there, there are great things here that people could probably learn from, but that's not the goal. The goal isn't to teach you how to, you know, create your lifestyle freedom business course and and live on the beach and write your newsletter every Saturday. You know, that's not the point of it. And, um, and that may happen, but I, I just find that, you know, I guess the, this all this discussion about these tactics and things is just for me, I guess it comes down to just be who you are. And if, if you're OK with certain strategies and that's who you are, then that's what people are going to respond to. Just don't don't try to just be a, a certain thing because you've seen someone else succeed with that. Totally. I think um, that uh, that authenticity and that finding your voice is um, is easier said than done, though, sometimes, you know, it's it's easy to say be who you are. But a lot of us get in front of the microphone or the camera and all of a sudden we're like, who the hell was that person? (laughs) That didn't sound like me at all. And so it takes you know, it takes practice. Um, I mean, I mean, this this show relaunch is after two years of doing a podcast. So, yeah, it does. It's hard to do that your first try, which is the point. You know, you have to keep trying, you know, and, um, you know, that that is actually kind of a good segue. I want you know, you're starting this new blog and and I, I wanted to ask you about. Um, your new blog. I noticed that you you put up your new theme. Is are you is that still uh, in the works or is that is that your are you that's finished in, with that? It's in the works. I, you know what I think is um, it's going to be one of those just tinkering little you know design projects that I'm going to work on for a yeah. long time. But what I was going to say is like, do you have a particular like for me with this show? I don't have a particular goal in mind. I, I decided I'm not trying to make money. I, I would like to perhaps grow my audience with this show, but I'm doing it because I really enjoy it and I don't want to feel the constraints to, uh, like, I could only talk to web people with the other show. I I just want to talk to whoever I want to talk to about whatever I want to talk about. And the people that get that and that like me will follow along and the people that don't won't. And so, you know, that was sort of my question, like with your new blog, do you have some specific goal in mind or is it sort of that same you know, I want to, an avenue to express myself without any constraints. I, so I've, I've been blogging for a long time and I've started, I don't know, four or five different blogs and I've, uh, you know, been lucky enough to reach a lot of people through blogging over the years. Um, I also already have a business, right? So I have that whole entity where I have to worry about what the bottom line is and, you know, what the, what the numbers look like. Um, and at the same time, I know that basically everything good that's happened to me over the past five and a half years, uh, happened because I started a blog and because of the people that I've met through putting my thoughts and words down on the page. So, you know, basically uh, the, the conclusion I came to was that I love blogging, just for the act of writing. And I love being able to talk about all kinds of things that aren't constrained by who am I trying to reach and where is this supposed to go? I'm not constrained by having to earn an income through my blog because Mm -hmm. I do that separately. And I know that there's a lot of magic that can happen just 
from the act of writing and putting your thoughts out there. So yeah. this blog has no boundaries, no constraints. And um, I'm really just writing about things that I find interesting and important to me and that I hope will help people. I have a vague idea of the kinds of people that are that I'm writing for, um, you know, people who are just um, obviously, you know, a, an ongoing uh, interest of mine is self-employment and the change yeah. that happens in your life when you um, become responsible for your own fate and you have to put bacon on the table yourself as opposed to just relying on yeah. um, some big corporate entity. So, you know, that's always going to be sort of at the foundation of it. But I, I'm not trying to lead people on some specific journey necessarily yet. It, it could evolve into that and we'll see. But right now I'm just I find that over time, if I put constraints on myself in terms of what the topic is, who I'm writing for, and what goal it has to achieve, then I end up not enjoying the process so much. And that's yeah. where that's where friction happens. And that's where um, a great project can sort of get stuck in the muck. And I, I don't want it to get there. So for now, I'm writing for, for myself as much as I am for anyone else. Well, okay. So how do you reconcile that then with like, if you go in and watch just about any fizzle course, uh, that's what you guys teach is find an audience, you know, it is specific and write to them and meet their needs and find their pain and, and all that stuff. And, um, it's maybe, maybe, maybe how you reconcile that is that, you, you know, you're, you're doing that somewhere else like fizzle. And then, so you have no need to do that at CorbettBar.com. Yeah, partly, uh, that's true. Um, you know, and, and I think if you listen to the fizzle show or you watch all of our courses, you're going to find that there are, um, there are a million ways to skin a cat. And yeah. it's not to say that you have to be so methodical about defining your audience and, and choosing a topic and things to make it because we all know there are plenty of examples of people out there who probably didn't do that and yet were successful. So there's no one way to make something work, but um, Fizzle is very much business training. And this mm -hmm. is what we believe is your best chance of building something that can support you. Yeah. Um, whereas what I'm doing now is for different purposes. It's for creative fulfillment. And, um, and so I, I think the two are a little bit different. The other thing is that I have the benefit of having a bit of a profile already because I've been yeah. blogging for five and a half years. And so the way that people interact with my work now is different from if they were trying to interact with uh, me five and a half years ago when no yeah. one knew me online. And so I have a bit of luxury there, I think, to play with. Well, that's what I was going to say. Let's say Fizzle didn't exist yet and you were still searching for the thing that you could support yourself with and trying to build that. Do you think that you might not necessarily do the the, the version of com that you're currently doing if that's that's the case you were in? You know, um, like what, what I'm trying to say is if, if you're, you know, you have ideas for like me, products, various things, but you haven't yet found the thing that, you know, um, is, is regularly sustaining you. I mean, it just makes it so damn complicated. You know, whenever you bring in the pressure of needing to make money off of something, it, it changes it all, you know, and it it's, does. it's, it's so hard. And so that's what I'm saying. If you didn't have that already, um, do you think that would have, you, you think maybe you, maybe you wouldn't be doing the CorbettBar.com you're doing absolutely. now? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you can, you can kind of look back and see the answer to that. Um, you know, circa, uh, my blog from, you know, uh, 20, 2010 or whatever. So, you know, I basically started blogging 
uh, at the time, it, the, the, the site that I started was called Free Pursuits. And really, it was a way for me to ask questions out loud about the nature of work and uh, life and the balance between the two and what I wanted from life and what was possible. And I found myself at this intersection of lifestyle design and location independence and all of these mm-hmm. interesting topics that people were buzzing about. And by the end of that first year, over half a million people had visited my blog. And I started to think, well, maybe there's something to this. And maybe you could build a business by growing an audience first and then figuring out what to sell them as opposed to the other way around. And at the same time, I started asking myself, well, I've been talking about this, you know, this interesting ideas for, uh, for how to build your career. And yet I haven't exactly done that myself yet. I have some things to share, but I'm not sure about how to turn this into a product, nor do I think that I can exactly. So what I did was I decided to start a completely separate blog on something that I thought was an immediate need, the kind of thing that easily led to products and services. And that was a site called Think Traffic. Yeah. Um, because I looked around and I saw a lot of people who had started blogs, some podcasts at the time, but podcasting wasn't really big then. And um, people who started a lot of sites that never grew an audience. And I started to wonder, like, what's the difference between projects that take off and grow a huge audience and projects that seem to be good, but never get traction? Yeah. And so I started that site to ask that question. (laughs) I started that site to ask that question and provide some answers to it. And also because it was a very clear path to revenue for me. And really that's what kicked off being able to support myself. And now, interestingly, to really come full circle in this thing to where now I don't have to worry about the income side of things because mm-hmm. I have Fizzle, which is, um, to me, a, 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 something that I'm really proud of and that earns a healthy living at the same time. But yeah. I can compartmentalize that and say, that's my business and this blog is really more me, just me personally yeah. and what I want to talk about. And so it's, it's a situation that I wish everybody could be in, but it took me five and a half years to get to this place. Yeah. Well, okay. So, um, wrapping it up here, I just have a, a couple more, um, just for my own benefit questions. Like what, like what, um, I've, I've heard some people say this, this is why the day job is important, but you know, for people like who listen to the show, people like us who who very much care about entrepreneurship and self-employment and ideas and teaching and helping people and just kind of all these things, you know, for the person who's in that place, but doesn't have a sustainable income, or maybe they have a, a day job or a sustainable, you know, freelance career in a completely unrelated thing to the thing that they're wanting to pursue, you know, um, what would your advice be to them? Is it, to stick it out with, you know, the, the the day job, the thing that pays your bills until the other thing takes off or to, you know, I'm torn or, or just dive all in and give it everything you've got, you know? It depends on your personality and, and your tolerance for uncertainty and for spending money that um, you're not sure you're going to be able to replace. Yeah. Um, you know, to some degree, I think that y- you've, I think all of us have had a friend who gets to the point in their life where they're looking for a spouse or a mate. Right. And they get that sense of, I'm in my 30s and I'm desperate now and I'm really looking for somebody hard. And you can kind of sense it on them and you kind of sense that the struggles they're having are related to that vibe that they're giving off. Mm -hmm. And I think that the same can happen with your career, especially if you're trying to build something around your personality through a blog or a podcast. If you go cold turkey on 
earning any sort of income and you turn to, okay, I'm going to build this audience and I'm going to do it in a hurry and I'm going to have products and suddenly I'm going to be supporting myself, that desperation can kind of come through and I think it can sabotage you to some degree. The other problem is that um, the weight and stress of living off of your own savings and watching that dwindle, uh, you know, while you're sort of calculating how many months you have left before you have to eat cat food, um, (laughs) that can stress people out in a major way. And I I did it twice. The first time in 2006, when I was building the startup that ultimately got venture capital, it took us about a year from the time we first started working on our software idea until we got venture capital. And so for that year, I watched my savings dwindle and that put me in the doctor's office. I had so much stress and anxiety over, um, I that does happen. What, that that's I I just experienced that a month ago, uh, having to get my gallbladder removed, and I was sh- I, I didn't realize it was related. But then I started doing some research and online, and I realized that so many of my friends have had the same thing. Like a, a period of intense stress led to a hospitalization, and that really scared the shit out of me. It's like holy right. holy crap, man! My work is actually physically affecting me at this point. You know? Yep, hundred percent. And and that happened to me. And and I I. I believe that you can learn to cope with that, but you're never prepared for it in yeah. the beginning. You know, that, that entrepreneurial, uh, emotional roller coaster is really, um, something to, something to fear or something to, to have a healthy respect for. Yeah. And nobody knows that going into it. And I, I don't think that you can, you can prepare for it. Um, but the second time around, you can know what those signs are and you can know how you handle things and you can learn when to take your foot off the gas. And, you know, when you get into that cycle of um, keeping yourself up at night because you're so stressed out about something and so worried about something, um, you know, that's a, a telltale sign. But I didn't really understand that the first time around and that lack of sleep and and whatever it ended up leading to a panic disorder for me, really. Um, yeah. now, I'm able, now I'm able to chill out and I know that I just have to operate at a different speed. I can't get so wrapped up about any one thing, um, especially, you know, now that I'm whatever, eight years older than I was that first time around. It's, yeah. It becomes becomes harder and harder on your system. So you just have to learn how to chill out. And I guess that's why I go to Mexico and surf for three months every winter. <laughs> well, do you think that everything that you went through to the point where you got to fizzle, this is a question I, I'm always curious about. Was that necessary? I mean, another way of asking the question is, would you do anything differently? And in other words, I'm wondering if, if, it, if, it, take, if it took that eight-year journey to eventually get to something that was successful and profitable and meaningful and added value to your life and you were happy about, or if there could, if you could have done something differently to, to get that on the, in the first year or the first or second try, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I think we all have uh, a lot of baggage and, and things that we need to learn to make progress. And sometimes there's no way to learn other than doing. Um, I think that if I maybe had paid more attention to the, the knowledge, the, the sort of communal knowledge amongst entrepreneurs about what it takes to actually build a business, I may have gotten further faster because I didn't really understand, you know, that a business is a really simple thing. You create something that's valuable and offer it to a group of people who are interested at a price that they're willing to pay. Yeah. And, and you really just, you know, try to then scale that up, you know, find one person who's willing to pay for something and then scale it up. And the first business that I built was more in the Silicon Valley model where you, 
try to build this thing really big without charging for it first. And mm-hmm. then, you know, at some point down the line, then you charge for it. And I, I just think that's, that's a, a lottery ticket with such low odds of winning that, yeah. you know, maybe it's worth doing once in your life because if you do strike it rich, then your whole life is different. Um, but it's definitely not the, the fastest way or the most assured way to build a business. The other thing that I question is, you know, I, I worked full time uh, for almost 10 years before I jumped into entrepreneurship. And I wonder if, you know, I couldn't have gotten what I got out of corporate America in three years versus 10 years. I mm. love the perspective that I have now. And I, I, I appreciate what I know about, you know, organizational politics and things like that, that I learned. But I don't know that I needed to repeat that uh, year after year for 10 years before I became an entrepreneur. I just, I think that um, people who are 23 or 24 are oftentimes very capable of building a business, just as capable as somebody who's older and, and more experienced and sometimes more so because they don't have the same uh, conditioning. It, it's it's very uh, that's one of those things that I feel like I guess it just totally depends on the person because like I have people ask me, you know, um, who are 20, you know, I'm 34 and they're like, you know, I, I want to be a freelance web designer, you know, and so what do I do? And and a lot of times my advo- my advice is go work for a, a, a web firm for a year, you know, and, and soak yeah. up everything you can about how they get clients and how they write proposals and how they maintain those relationships because you don't just you aren't you aren't born knowing that stuff, you know, and but then other times it's like with certain people that might be a waste of time. Like they they probably have enough whatever that quality is to just dive in and figure it out, you know. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and and um, the other thing I think again a lot of times like this conversation has sort of gone uh, binary on us. It's like either you go all in <laughs> yeah. or you work for a company. I think there's plenty of room in between. I mean now it's more and more common, especially if you have design or software development shops to be able to find a gig where you have all the flexibility in the world. Um, even though you're working for a company, you know, you get to choose where and when, and sometimes how much you work for that company. And it gives you a lot of flexibility to be working on your own projects on the side. And you might even find a company that doesn't mind you working on projects on the side because they know that it leads to, um, you know, you learning interesting things that are going to be useful to them sure. and to you potentially being more engaged at your work. So don't discount that idea of finding a gig that's really great and flexible and buys you time because the thing you never know is, is this business that I'm trying to start now going to be the one that works and that supports me? Or is it going to take me 10 years? You know, and it, yeah. it does take some people 10 years and that doesn't mean that it's not worth it because, your 40 or 50 year old self or whatever is damn sure going to appreciate the fact that (laughs) you put in that time to build a successful business down the road. Um, but if it does take 10 years, you might save yourself a lot of grief. If you have a relationship with a company that allows you to put food on the table without having to potentially put yourself in the hospital with all that stress. I mean, there, there are certainly middle grounds and I'm so guilty of that. I tend to make everything, I I think it's my religious upbringing. (laughs) Everything is either extreme left or extreme right. It's absolutely Right. right or absolutely wrong. And it's always hard to find or accept that there's a middle ground. And and I also think it's it's we're kind of trained in this space to um, we look at the successful people like we look at Fizzle and and no one knows necessarily that, you know, Fizzle is after a 10 year career and then eight years of trying something else for you or whatever. They think, oh, well, he had this idea and it just worked. And and I think part of it is accepting that, you know, the 
the first try successes is like winning the lottery. I mean, they do happen, but they're it's not likely to happen to you, you know? And so it, just don't be um, afraid of it taking a few years or a period of time for something to work or to figure it out or figure out how to do it or, you know, whatever. I mean, we all want to start a podcast and by episode 10 have a hundred thousand listeners. And, and that does happen sometimes, but most often it happens, you know, after dozens and dozens of episodes, you know? Yep. And, um, you know, there's, there is nothing to be scared of, um, especially if you commit to living your life in the meantime, instead of making this business or whatever it is that you're trying to build the center of your universe so that every emotion you have throughout every day hangs on, you know, how well something went with your business. If you chill out and relax a little bit, adopt a little bit of a surfer's mindset and, um, and, and just sit back and relax and enjoy the journey for what it is. Enjoy the ups and the downs and the challenge of, uh, encountering all these roadblocks and learning how to get around them. That's a very, uh, powerful thing when you learn how to do that, not just for your business, but for your life in general, when you learn that, you know, any sort of adversity is, is just yet another challenge and there's always a way around it. Um, and, uh, time and perspective make things seem a lot different than they were, uh, when they were going on. That, that's why I love the concept. I don't know if Chase, if he was the one that mentioned it to me or, or somewhere I, someone talked about the concept of, of seasons, you know, like, I mean, change is the one thing that's inevitable, you know, and, and I am definitely guilty of, and I think a lot of people live their lives for some ultimate destination they're trying to get to. And that never happens. Or when it does, it doesn't look like what you thought it was going to look like anyway. So, you know, um, yeah, if you can figure out a way to kind of, um, you know, not not to get all, you know, Oprah and Dr. Phil here, but if you can figure <laughs> out a way to, you know, live life in the meantime and, you know, oh, I can't even believe I'm about to say this, but quote, enjoy the journey. I mean, I think you're going to be happier than, you know, waiting for some destination because, like I said, it's either not going to arrive or it's not going to be what you thought it was once you get there. And in uh, this case, Adam, I think the cheese was warranted. Nice. Nice. Okay. So one last thing I have ended several of these shows where, you know, typically uh, a podcast will end and then I will, you know, ask the guest a question or something that I was curious about just for my personal situation. And the whole point of this podcast is because, you know, it's an, 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 an exercise in vulnerability from my standpoint. And so a lot of times I don't like to ask these questions on the air as part of the podcast, but I'm doing it because maybe someone will find it useful. But um, so more of a personal advice uh, question, because I'm sure people are there. You know, you back in the day, you know, you decided to start Think Traffic, for example. And, you know, you could have just built CorbettBar.com, you know, and built your personal brand. And, you know, today that's a big, big kind of thing. You know, everyone wants, you know, building a personal brand, turning into some sort of life coach or whatever. I don't even know what that stuff means. But, you know, for like, me specifically or someone like me who is uh, trying to grow an audience and make products and things like that, um, do you think the the route of the the personal brand, you know, the um, build everything under adamclark.com and give yourself the freedom to change directions down the road is, uh, is a good one because it, it feels good because it gives you flexibility, but... 
you know, most of the advice that you guys give in your courses and everything is is to do what you did, to be specific, to start a separate site that is, you know, isn't your name, that's very, you know, you, you write your headline, it's very targeted and very specific to an audience, and it's separate from you and your personality. Does that does that question make sense? Do you know what I'm it getting does. at there? Yeah. It does, totally. And I actually get this a lot, because I think a lot of people are thinking about this. So first of all, uh, like, uh, this is the third or fourth time, I want to remind people that, or remind you, that uh, there's no reason the answer can't be somewhere in the middle. It doesn't yeah. have to be all or nothing. Um, there are ways to build a lot of your own personality into your brand, even though maybe it's not under your own brand name. Yeah. Um, there's also no reason that you can't maintain a personal site, personal brand, and have these other brands out there and kind of see what takes off. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I usually caution people about when they think about building a personal brand is that I've observed that few of us are capable of really pulling off the level of interestingness and (laughs) sophistication it takes to be a personal brand. You have to be interesting. Yeah. You, You have to be interesting. And not only that, but like we talked earlier about the person who gets desperate and starts looking for a spouse, I think when you feel like the weight of the success of your business is on your shoulders and your personality, you start to feel like you're being judged in all kinds of ways that you never were before. And so all of these insecurities and other things can come out because suddenly it feels like you're on stage and maybe you haven't really prepared that well, mm-hmm. or maybe you don't have enough, enough experience to carry a talk well. Um, and so it feels like there's a spotlight on you and it doesn't mean that you couldn't pull that off. Eventually I'm starting to feel more and more comfortable personally in that role. But I know that when I had my own personal brand and I was leaning towards building a business around it, all of that stuff that you were talking about with tactics and things Mm -hmm. become even harder uh, when it's your personal brand. Because you feel like, you feel like Adam Clark is doing it as opposed to fizzle or the gently mad or whatever. So you well, like that's that's you know, like I look at someone like Pat Flynn, for example. You know, his smart passive income is his is his brand, and you know, while he his personality is very much a part of it, his website is smart passive income, and he's got a headline that's targeted toward you know that whole website and that podcast is is very focused, you know, and yep. and that's appealing because you think, wow, I, I could make this super focused, um, but the part that's appealing about doing a personal brand, like if it was just patflynn.com, would be that you're growing an audience around you. And so that, you know, like for me right now, I'm, I'm, I'm building a, um, a podcasting course. I mean, everybody knows this at this point, it's no secret, but you know, the thing I think about is that like, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, there's a good likelihood I'm not still going to be talking about podcasting. So, you know, if I dedicate everything to this brand that's all about podcasting, it's it's a lot harder, I, I would feel like, to pivot than if I spent all that time building an audience around me who would follow me kind of wherever I go. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, although I've, I have pivoted a number of times and um, anything's possible. Uh, yeah. I think if people have connected with you and your brand and, and you have influence over them for some reason, um, a portion of them will follow you and you'll be building your personal brand alongside of whatever other brand you're building anyway. Um, as long as you, you know, inject enough of your own personality into it and, and make sure that people are aware of who's behind the project. And that's just smart business sense these days. Anyway, people like to do business, um, with brands that have personality and that have, 
uh, a clear, you know, team behind it, I think. But so, I mean, if so, you could start it all over, you, you would still go the route of, you know, you'd still end up with Fizzle and not, not, not CorbettBar.com selling, you know, branded products, cleaners. but under your name. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would, I would do it the way that I did. And, and that's just because of how my personality works and because of what I observed about myself when that spotlight was on me. Hmm. I didn't see myself as um, a Marie Forleo or a Ramit Sethi. I thought more, um, like you said, along the sort of Pat, Fl- Pat Flynn lines where you can have a strong brand and you can be a big part of that brand. I mean, just slap your face on everything and people will know yeah. who you are um, yeah. at a minimum. And there's no reason that you can't maintain another site separately or a podcast like this where you talk about anything under the sun. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like I've ever been known to overthink things. So no, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the problem is the problem with this is there is no right answer um, yeah. because you can find any example that you want to, to support either direction or, or the third direction, the middle direction we talked about. That's what, that's what makes it so tough. I think for people who have my kind of personality is like, I, I want, I want to know, like I'm a strategist and I'm like an idea person and I want, want to know sir? the path, you know, I, yep. I want to know where I'm going and I want to know what turns I'm going to have to take to get there and be able to plan it all out. And the reality is most of the time you just, you can't do that. You know, and I, I'm guessing you and Chase may have talked about uh, how a religious upbringing may have influenced that. As I, well. I, I, I really think, I really think it does. Honestly, I really think that that has had a, a huge impact because you're just trained from such a young age to look at the world in in absolutes. You know, and so our answers. Yep. Yeah. So even when when you grow up and even if you kind of move away from it and maybe, you know, whatever you're whatever you're in business, whatever the thing is, you still treat it as like, you know, OK, what what is the right way to do this and what's the wrong way to do this so I can make sure I do it the right way. And and that's just a that's a search that, you know, is never going to end. That's that, that's what leads you to uh, being on creative dot com for six months watching courses and never doing anything. <laughs> It's a recipe for self-torture, for sure. Exactly. But, uh, well, thanks thanks for coming on the show, man. I'm really excited. It was like, you know, I felt like I needed to complete the collection. You know, like when you're a kid yeah. and you, you, you know, read Hardy Boys and you got to get, you got to collect all the books. You know, I, yep. I, I've talked to to Caleb and to Chase and I felt like, you know, I need the fizzle collection complete in my podcast. So it's the trilogy, the trilogy, <laughs> but now you've added Barrett. So now I've got another one to add, know, you know, to I have know. the well, Barrett's like the sequel. I mean, it's like not part of the original trilogy, but it's no, like, but it's like an he's addition. He's like the JJ, JJ Abrams version, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's the, he's what's going to make it all, uh, um, uh, not work uh, in the future. Yeah. Not, not terrible. Like, uh, did you see the George Lucas, um, special edition version of the trailer they just released no there is one yeah well, I, well you I know the, the star Lego wars version. the star wars trailer came out and then someone put together a a george lucas special edition version of the trailer which was just right. you know making fun of it had all the classic uh you know all the stuff added in that didn't need to be there and actually took away from it was it was pretty funny so all right I'll look it up <laughs> that's uh that's that's everyone's homework go watch that trailer uh because uh that'll be fun so <laughs> But anyway, thanks. I really appreciate you coming on the show and taking the time, man. This this was great. It was great to get to know you a little bit. I feel like uh, I feel like I do sort of know you because of all the online interaction. But great to finally talk in person, and I appreciate your time on the show. Likewise, thanks so much, and uh, congrats on the new the new show, the new packaging. Thanks, man. 
Yep, we'll see. We'll see what happens. So good luck. <laughs> Thanks a lot for having me on. All right. Well, that's it, guys. That's the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Corbett, for being my guest and for that wonderful conversation. Hope you guys have a great Christmas, a great holiday, relaxing, rest, get some rest, disconnect, get off Twitter, get off Facebook, except uh, go to my sites, of course. Uh, go to You can follow me on A.V. Clark on Twitter. Go to avclark.com slash TGM to subscribe to this show. Leave me a review and a rating. Be part of the contest at avclark.com slash contest. Check out my podcasting course at avclark.com slash course. Man, is there anything else I can promote? More, a little more, maybe a little more me and a little bit more me. I don't know if I could possibly talk about myself more than I have. But uh, do check out all those things. I really appreciate it. Keep the reviews coming. The email's coming. I love getting all this stuff from you guys. I've just been blown away by this, by how this show has taken off right from the beginning, and it's meant a lot. So uh, everything we talked about here can be found at avclark.com slash seven. This is episode seven. So like I said, have a great holiday, and I will see you next time.